The Justin Bibb administration has begun. The Frank Jackson administration is officially over. It is the first episode of Today in Ohio in 2022. Today in Ohio is the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the regulars, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, Lisa Garvin. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday and are ready to dive back into the news. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. All right. Well, let's get to it. How is Ohio and greater Cleveland coping with the record-setting numbers of coronavirus cases almost two years into this pandemic? Lisa, let's start with just how high the numbers went during our podcast break. We seem to break records every day last week. And we really did set new records every single day. And when we think about before Thanksgiving, when it was, you know, things were declining or steady, and then all of a sudden Omicron just ripped through Ohio like a wildfire. Starting back on Thursday, December 16th, that was kind of the first record we set before, you know, the January 2020, we had 11,803 people, you know, hospitalized or testing positive for COVID. And, but that included a backlog of cases from before. And so it was a corrected thing. Um, going to the 21st of December, we went up to 12,502. We were at 28,277 deaths on that date overall in Ohio. On the 22nd, Wednesday, 12,864. So that was almost 300 more cases than the day before. Uh, Going to the 30th of December, we had 20,320 cases. Again, a new record. We were breaking records every single day. We uh, hospitalized with COVID on the 30th of December. There were 5,300. 56. That was a new record of hospitalizations across Ohio. And this was also when DeWine, Mike DeWine, the governor, decided to call up 1,250 more Ohio National Guardsmen to help in the hospitals. He had already called up 1,000 before. And then this holiday weekend that we just went through, the two-day total for cases was 37,626, a new high in hospitalizations as of yesterday, 5,601. I know that's, a, that's the thing. 5,600 people were in the hospital suffering with COVID almost a year after the vaccine became available. That's the, uh, that's the most striking thing about this. I, I mean, I, I just was stunned at how high the numbers got, but it shows you, I think, how contagious Omicron is. I mean, it's just exploding. I mean, how many people do we all know now who've gotten it, who had stayed safe for most of the time? Our newsroom had had the occasional case over most of the pandemic, but over the last two weeks, we've had people dropping all over the place. Um, it's, it's, it seems like this will continue, right? I mean, this was the post-Christmas, the post-Christmas explosion. All the people got together over the holidays. They all spread the the virus, and that probably will continue. The U.S. is predicting it'll peak in a couple of weeks, so we have a couple of weeks of of hell. But what is? What if this is it? What if you know it spreads? Everybody gets it. It's a much more mild form in the end. It's not attacking the lungs. It looks like and. They're not seeing the the level of death that they've seen from the previous iterations, at least not yet. What if this is it? What if we go into spring, we we phase out, and when we get back next year, it's evolved into a very 
mild form of virus. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice. We hope that that happens, but uh, you know, we will have to go through a rough patch of about four to six weeks. Different, you know, experts are saying rough January, rough January, first half of February for Omicron. But you know, when you have an unvaccinated population, that allows it to continue circulating and perhaps mutating. Well, let, let, let's look at the bright side of that, though. I mean, if you look at what happened in the 1880s when what became the common cold first came out, it took like 10 years for that to mutate enough to become the mild form of the common cold. It was probably, what, 1.2 billion people on the planet back then. We got more than six times that many now. Is it possible that because we've crammed so many bodies onto the planet that this thing could move much more quickly than than it did back then so that we get to that mild form in a few years or two years or two and a half years instead of 10 to 15. That's my optimistic opening <laughs> for the new year. <laughs> well, it, let me throw a little pessimism on that fire. <laughs> I mean, okay, I understand that, as you said, it doesn't attack the lungs and it's it's perhaps less less lethal than, than earlier iterations. But then what's to account for all of this hospitalization and death that we continue to see? Because, you know, even if it's evolving, there is still a very vulnerable percentage of the population that is going to end up hospitalized. And how do you how does that come to it? I can answer that. I can. I mean, I think it's just a matter of math. I mean, clearly a, a much smaller percentage of people that get Omicron need hospitalization compared to Delta. But so many people have it just because of sheer numbers they're showing up. Um, they, 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 look, the death, whether deaths uh, increase, we're, we're, it's probably a little bit too early to see, right? Because this thing is just spreading in the last couple of weeks. But, but all of the, the things, all of the information that's come out so far has said that maybe not. Um, and, and the good news is, is if you've gotten a booster shot, you really have a good chance of, of not being that sick. I mean, the people on our own staff that it got the booster shot, they were saying they felt like they were at 90% of normal and, and, and kept on their feet and were up and around easily within a couple of days. So the booster shot does seem with Omicron, you're going to, you could get it. You're going to get it if you don't wear a mask, but at least you are not deathly ill. It's almost like the common cold. It'd be nice to get to the point where you don't need a booster shot to get that. Anyway, it's ugly. Laura, let's talk about schools. Kids are returning to schools today after the long break. They've all been mixing it up with people and they're probably all walking around with the coronavirus. The schools are going to be in trouble if they all their staff gets gets the coronavirus. They start testing positive. Mike DeWine wants students to wear masks in school, but he won't force it. Why not? Well, because he's Mike DeWine and what has he actually forced to happen lately? But I mean, he. <laughs> He, he won't answer this question directly, but in mid-September when he had the question, he basically pointed to the legislature in Senate Bill 22, which allows the Ohio General Assembly to rescind any kind of health rule and order that he, from the Ohio Department of Health or the director, aimed at preventing the spread of contagious diseases. So I think he thinks, if I do it, it's just going to get taken away, and that's more confusing. So he keeps continuing his, please wear a mask, please get vaccinated daily haranguing of Ohioans. 
Other states have taken more measures. I was in Maryland over the break, and by December 31st, everybody had to wear a mask indoors there. That kind of came up over the holidays. But he he's not, uh, DeWine's not enforcing that here. Executives from six children's hospitals in Ohio did send a letter to DeWine, as well as all the K-12 superintendents and administrators and school boards saying, please have your kids wear a mask when they return. I know my kids went back to school today. Up until now in Rocky River, masks have been mandatory for grades kindergarten through fifth and sixth through 12. It was totally optional. But today, everybody's supposed to be wearing a mask. And they had said that starting second semester at the end of January, no one was going to be required to wear a mask. But I think they're really rethinking that. Thank goodness. Well, I, I did. Look, Mike DeWine, we. Right. We, it's like who wasn't on the list? You know, they probably felt bad line, that they weren't on the list. But yeah, this was a 2018 list of candidates that he compiled. It was a handwritten thing. This was released by Attorney General Dave Yost from those documents that were seized from Bush's office back in February of 2019. Of course, we know that former prosecutor Bill Mason, who was on the list, was eventually chosen in June of 2019. We also found from the notes that he considered a title change. You know, from chief of staff, by staffing yeah, outages. just some of the people. Is that the I mean, for I couldn't the list them all. all There's so many, but Chris Ronane, the university circle president, he's now the, uh, one of the candidates for Bush's job. What uh, John do? Russo, is, the court of common pleas judge, a real estate attorney, Tony Coyne, who also used to head the Cleveland City Planning Commission, Bernie Moreno, our car dealer and U.S. Senate candidate, U.S. Marshal Peter Elliott. I mean, the list goes on and on. And these are like the can't imagine the there crop are of thousands and thousands more ready or Some. that they're qualified to teach all the different right. grades. At this point, I would think going remote with your regular teacher would be preferable to them watching movies with a substitute in class. But I agree that kids are learning a whole <laughs> lot more when they're in school. I'm glad that my kids are, have been in school. But you're right. Staffing is a huge problem. It's been a huge problem with everything. It's not just this idea that the kids are too sick to go to school. It's that, yeah, there's... There could be well, no one to touch. And remember the bus driving issue? Like people in Euclid, they were asking the National Guard <laughs> to be bus drivers. And DeWine was really reticent to do that because he'd be taking them away from their truck driving and other other occupations that would hurt other parts of the supply chain. Well, and that's, but, but that's the thing, the too. Teachers. No, no, wait. wait. If, if the National Guard, if, if there are members of the National Guard who are qualified to be teachers, don't you think they probably are already teaching? But, but let's stick with the teachers for a moment because the the... the what I think you're going to see is teachers who largely have had the booster shots will get diagnosed and can stay on their feet. If they're at 90 percent, they could still teach. And that that's the rub. They can't come to school because they have to quarantine, but they could stay home and teach. And that's a whole different reason for remote learning. We had all the debate about whether you should have ever had kids stay home to protect them from the coronavirus. There are a lot of people that think that was a mistake. This is different. This is if your only choice is to have a quarantining teacher teach from home, then remote learning may be the way to go. Are you ready for it, Layla and Laura? <laughs> no, 100 percent. No. And I mean, I don't think the schools are. I mean, some districts maybe Cleveland Metropolitan School District went remote, but my school district, they took back all the Chromebooks. They don't have their classroom set up online. They would have to scramble for a couple of days. I know in Ontario, they're, they're seeing a spike there, too. They just told their kids to stay home two extra days from Christmas break to try to just get to that point that they've been quarantined long enough. Because I think a lot of families, I know a lot of families that ended up with COVID during the break. So they actually didn't 
mix up that much. They didn't go travel around. They didn't have Christmas parties. And they're just ending their quarantine now to go back to school. All right, Layla, one of the vaccine queens who gains national attention after you wrote about them in your columns made news again. After helping so many others, she suddenly needed to help herself. Yes. Listeners will remember Stacey Benny and, and Marla Zwingy, the vaccine queens, these two Northeast Ohio women who met each other online and then teamed up to help people schedule appointments to get their COVID vaccines during those months when you know, the vaccine was really hard to find and it was basically a free for all out there. They ended up helping more than 2,300 people get vaccinated. Well, this past week, Stacy Benny put out a plea on Facebook asking for help herself. She has tested positive for COVID. And while she is triple vaccinated, she has cystic fibrosis, which means that what would be a mild COVID infection for other people could really be devastating for her. She needed an infusion of a monoclonal antibody, and it, and it has, you know, it, it has to happen within five days of symptom onset. But she learned that the Cleveland Clinic has a 10-day waiting list for the treatment at Marymount Hospital, where uh, they are doing these outpatient treatments. So she was asking Facebook, uh, you know, all her, her collection of friends there to help her find an infusion center, even one out of state that could take her. In the end, you know, someone in the healthcare field did hear her plea, it seems, and and connected her with an infusion center, and she does have an appointment to get that treatment. But clearly, her predicament shines a light on a really big problem here. The monoclonal antibody treatment is a, a key to keeping people out of the hospital. But if you have a 10-day waiting list for a drug that has to be administered within five days, it's not serving anybody. I mean, is the problem with a shortage of the treatment or a staffing problem? I don't know. I feel like that that warrants a closer look. She did find it, though. She will get the treatment. It sounds like it. And and I will I will, uh, you know, hold my breath until until she has it, um, because, you know, cystic fibrosis uh, mixed with covid is is a very dangerous situation. And and Stacy is a beloved hero of, of Ohio. And, and I know everyone is wishing her well. Okay, that's a lot of COVID talk to start the podcast, but it is the big story of the day. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland did not break 2020's modern-day record for homicides, but its number was the second worst, and the year ended with a fatal carjacking of an off-duty Cleveland police officer and a series of carjackings in Little Italy. Lisa, let's begin with the killing of police officer Shane Bartek. What happened there? Yeah, this happened on the very last day of the year, December 31st, and it was like right in the middle of the day, as I recall. But 25-year-old Shane Bartek, who's been with the Cleveland Police Department since August 2019, was carjacked in Cam's Corners. Um, He was off duty at the time. Um, He was trying to attempt to stop the carjacking. He was shot twice in the back, and then the, the two people fled. There are two people. Both of them have now been arrested and charged. The first one, they were chased too. There was a chase that they didn't tell us what the exact route of the chase was, but it did end at East 260th and Lakeshore, which is in Euclid. Um, Arrested was Anthony Butler Jr. He's 28. He was charged with receiving stolen property, fleeing and eluding. His bond is $5 million. Um, This was at from the Richmond Heights Police Department. He has seven priors in the last four years, including several car thefts. Then they finally caught up with 18-year-old Tamara McCloyd, 
who is the alleged gun woman. She is charged with aggravated murder. She has a court appearance happening later today. She was also charged in a robbery uh, November 2nd of Happy's Pizza on the West Side. Um, and they, there was an arrest warrant issued for her. And so there was a warrant out for her at the time that this incident occurred. So yeah, just a, a bad way to end the year. This is the first, uh, you know, policeman killed since September of 2020 when an undercover officer was killed during a, a, a buy bust. Well, and in both those cases, it seems like the, the person doing the killing didn't know they were attacking a police officer. There was a, according to Adam Paris, I think our reporter, there was a carjacking in that same parking lot about a week earlier. We, we've seen this rash of carjackings. And in, in this case, the woman that was charged is 18 years old. We've seen a bunch of juveniles who've been, been putting guns to people and stealing their cars. There was one, uh, a woman from Case Western Reserve University, a student who was shot twice during a carjacking just a few days before this. It's out of control. I don't quite understand the the motive because the it's joy riding in the cars and you get whatever materials are in the car but this doesn't seem like it's a high profit way to go for such a confrontational crime but it's it's bad so laura just departed cleveland mayor frank jackson often said the good measure of a mayor is how he or she handles a crisis justin bibb hasn't had a chance to breathe yet as mayor of cleveland and he's got a crisis homicides are at their almost all time worst and gun violence is out of control. Is he saying how he's going to tackle this and what he's going to do about the carjackings? We haven't seen a specific plan from him coming, but he has said that he wants to work, you know, everyone to work together and that this kind of senseless crime is not going to be, it's not going to be allowed under his, his tenure. I, I don't know how you stop that. I mean, right now it seems like this incredibly, terrible, vicious cycle where crime is so bad that parents want to arm their kids with guns to protect them. The more guns there are on the street, the more the people are afraid, the more the people buy guns. And I don't know how you end that cycle when people are afraid to leave their homes. And these are scary situations. And we just talked about the carjackings. I mean, these are not in what you would call necessarily bad neighborhoods. And the people that, that wouldn't have thought that they would end up to be victims of a crime. But the while we're not talking more homicides than we saw last year there are more guns involved in these um in these episodes and it's happening across the country and i i don't really understand how how, what you do to stop it i think obviously if we knew we would do it well it does seem from what we're reading of some of the people involved in these that they've been before a judge for a crime of violence previously and they're out on the street. There's There's been a lot of talk over the past few years that judges need to stop putting people into prison for long-term for nonviolent crime. But I don't think anybody's argued that violent crime should get leniency, and yet it appears to. I mean, it seems like that you're seeing more and more that when somebody's arrested, that they, they had had a previous gun crime. And if you pull a gun on somebody, you're a danger to the community. I'm surprised they're walking around. It'll be interesting to see what happens because Justin Bibb did support issue 24, which mm-hmm. was to put civilian control over the police. The police don't like that. So he starts off right off the bat with a police department that's looking at him skeptically, but he's going to need their help if they're going to bring this under control 
it'll be interesting to see what he says. If he says anything today, it's his first day on the job. He got sworn in just after midnight right. about what he's going to do. But do people want to see an answer here? Well, and so and Council President Blaine Griffin talked to Adam Faris for his end of the year story about the gun violence. He said he wants to see raises for city police officers. He said they left in droves last year and he wants to attract and retain good officers, also get them better equipment. But I mean, that's one piece of the puzzle. Obviously, we got to look at mental health, social services, all of those issues we've been talking about before. But you're right. We, on one hand, we're talking about lowering the jail population and, and having this reform, but nobody wants dangerous people out in the street. Mike O'Malley, the prosecutor, says we really need a new focus on getting handguns off the street and the availability of handguns is what's driving the numbers. Cleveland police had seized more than 3,000 guns in 2021. That was a 33% increase over 2020 and a 68% increase over 2019. So they're trying, but there's just a lot of guns out there. And, and Ohio is loosening gun laws, which is probably another place to look. Well, maybe this will be the first collaboration between the new mayor and the new council president. Justin Bibb and Blaine Griffin could get together and maybe come up with a strategy that starts attacking this. Blaine Griffin does understand the the street. I mean, he spent a lot of time keeping us from erupting into violence during some of the worst episodes of the past few years. He's got a lot of credibility with community groups, so maybe maybe there's a solution there. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What did the monitor overseeing Cleveland police reform have to say about Cleveland's investigation of the police chase that killed 13-year-old Tamia Chapman in 2019? Layla, this was very sharply worded. It was. Tamia died, just to remind people, after a teenage carjacking suspect with Cleveland police in pursuit jumped a curb and struck her. She was walking with some friends to the East Cleveland Library after school. Well, the the Office of Professional Standards recommended that nine officers face discipline, but Chief Calvin Williams ordered written reprimands for only two. So Hassan Aiden, who's the monitor overseeing the, the city's police reform efforts, filed this report in federal court that called the city's investigation into Tamia's death limited and incomplete. He said that the police department conducted its review in a manner where the result was a foregone conclusion and that should have been apparent to all levels of CPD uh, leadership. Aiden said the city failed to obtain an accident report by East Cleveland police and didn't recover video from security cameras or traffic cameras along the route. He also said that that Williams made his decision on discipline while an investigation by the Office of Professional Standards was still pending. A lieutenant who assisted a supervisor during the chase was assigned to conduct the follow-up probe into the pursuit. And, and Aiden said that that virtually ensured the investigation would be defensive in nature. So, you know, the city, as you can imagine, really takes issue with Aiden's take on it. They filed a rebuttal in court arguing that the criticism is undeserved. They said the investigation was thorough. The cops were following the department's chase policy at the time, which permitted them to pursue violent criminals like this teenage carjacker who's now behind bars for the next 15 years. They they say he was to blame for Tamia's death, not the police. So a, a final um, you know rebuttal from the from the Jackson administration on their way out the door here. Yeah, you know, I did think that the report was a little bit over the top in its criticism, but I was really kind of surprised that the city responded to it. Mm, I mean, mm -hmm. they've had their say. The Jackson administration had 16 years of its say. Days after this was filed, a new administration was coming in. They're the ones that will have to deal with this going forward. Why go in to the court and say nana nana boo boo when you're about to go? I mean, Justin Bibbs' law department could go into court today 
or tomorrow or soon and say, you know what? The criticism is well-founded. We're, we're going to work on it. And it's going it, it just will create confusion. I, I, again, I, I thought that this was a little bit over the top and it's criticism for what happened here, but, but I was kind of surprised that they would respond at all. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But it's it's not the the first uh, questionable thing we've noticed in in the last months of Jackson's administration. So, um, you know, I don't quite understand also why why they've been they they acted the way they they have in in these last this last stretch. But um, you know, again, I, I think maybe they just want to be on the record with with you know you know as they as they leave the office but it doesn't matter because there's going to be a new record starting today and it doesn't matter you've had your time it's over god they it was like they couldn't let go they weren't gonna we can't leave we've been in charge for 16 years it's ours right oh well we'll see it's today in ohio Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish had to come up with a good chief of staff a few years ago after his second one quit abruptly and while his office was in crisis from a criminal investigation and a jail scandal. Who did he put on his list and was he delusional in thinking any of them might have taken the job? Lisa, this was another piece of information Corey Schaefer mined from discovery in the court case involving Budish's former jail director, Ken Mills. But I was... <laughs> to talk about big names this is like the who's who of cleveland right it's like who wasn't on the list you know they probably felt bad that they weren't on the list but yeah this was a 2018 list of candidates uh that he that he compiled it was a handwritten thing this was released by attorney general dave yost from those documents that were seized from budish's office back in uh, february of 2019 of course we know that former prosecutor bill mason who was on the list was eventually chosen in june of 2019 and we also found from the notes that he considered a title change you know from chief of staff but yeah, just some of the people, I mean, I couldn't even list them all. There's so many, but Chris Ronane, the University Circle president, he's now the uh, one of the candidates for Budish's job. Uh, John Russo, the Court of Common Pleas judge. A real estate attorney, Tony Coyne, who also used to head the Cleveland City Planning Commission. Bernie Moreno, our car dealer and U.S. Senate candidate. U.S. Marshal Peter Elliott. I mean, the list goes on and on. Oh, and well. these are like the cream of the crop of Cleveland. But but he also had D. Haslam. He had Chris Connor, the longtime head, retired head of Sherwin Williams. I mean, he had, I mean, the the people on that list. There's no way D. Haslam's going to go play second fiddle to Armin Budish. Does anybody think that's a possibility? And this was a list that you're looking at it going, what is he thinking? I I, I mean, was it? Well, I just don't know. I I mean, I'm sure that we we couldn't possibly call all of them before they saw their names on. On our story, I'm sure they were a bit chagrined to see their names on there, but it was crazy. I mean, he ended up with Bill Mason, the longtime political operator who was the former county prosecutor. And, you know, the, the thinking was, did he bring him in to help with his reelection bid, which he eventually wisely dropped because he's had such a terrible second term. But uh, but it's crazy when you look at all the names. Check them out. They're on Cleveland.com. Corey put them all together and he put up the document you can see it in armin budish's own handwriting don't take our word for it it's today in ohio millions of people listening to the serial podcast about criminal justice got to know cuyahoga county judge dan gall a few years ago and he did not come off well now his future as a judge is in jeopardy laura how come 
because he's accused of misconduct in five cases over six years. This is a 30-page complaint filed last week with the Ohio Supreme Court, and it details um, several cases in which you know, your head, you're scratching your head about what this judge was thinking. And this, these claims come from 2014 through 2020. They include coercing a plea, improper questioning, taking the position of a biased advocate and inappropriate communication with an incarcerated defendant. And those are all violations of the Ohio Code of Judicial Conduct and the Ohio Rules of Professional Conduct. Gall's been on the bench since 1991. He was suspended by the Supreme Court in 2010, but the court stayed the suspension. And if you listen to Serial, which I don't remember how many years old this is at this point, but you caught lots of him berating defendants and discriminatory statements he made, particularly to black defendants in his courtroom. And uh, you heard it in his own voice. It was it was something to listen to. Well, and and he got reelected after that, which was amazing. I mean, it just Layla, you've seen this over the years, too. I mean, he should not have been reelected. There is no way he should have been reelected. But because of the Democratic Party machine in Cuyahoga County, he gets the endorsement and people take the postcard into the polls. And now he's very I mean, I don't see how he can beat this back. He's he's going to fight it. He has a lawyer. But this is ugly stuff. And and the, the, the whole thing is based on transcripts. I mean, if you read the document, we published it on Cleveland.com. You can see the, the 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 people putting these charges together didn't need to write anything. They just need to put his own transcripts up, and it and it works against him. Yeah, I mean, his attorney says they're going to defend the case vigorously and look forward to presenting their side of the matter. But you're right; if you're looking at the case, this isn't just my you know someone's opinion that he was unfair. Um, for example, in August of 2016, this one defendant wanted a continuance. Um, the judge denied it and threatened to punish this defendant if he denied a plea deal. He said he'd be given a prison sentence of potentially three times as long as his 14-year plea if he was convicted. So the defendant, they say, he originally chose to deny the plea, then take the case to trial. But after this talk, he gave the plea. He ended up filing an appeal. The, The court agreed with him. And then he ended up being tried before a jury and a different judge and was acquitted of all his charges. So you basically have Gall according to this complaint, trying to talk someone to pleading guilty who ended up being found not guilty of well, all the charges. It's it's worse than that because he's saying to the guy, you ought to take this plea because like, like you said, he's going to get triple the sentence right. if he gets convicted. And the guy said, but I didn't do it. And once the defendant says to the judge, I didn't do it, the judge should not be saying, take the plea or I'm going to land on you like a ton of bricks. And you're right. He was acquitted. In the end, he, he was found not guilty by a jury of his peers. And this judge was railroading him. I don't know how you come back from that. And, and really, just read it. I mean, if you read the conversation, a judge is supposed to be impartial. He was he was playing prosecutor. He was playing the prosecutor's role in that. I imagine the prosecutor was very uncomfortable because they realized this case is going to end up going to a challenge at the appellate court. So it's a bad time for him. He These things take a while. We've seen other judges come through it. Pinky Carr is the latest one that we've talked about, but it's going to be hard but for him to maintain it. Obviously, judges are elected. Don't you think, though, that people, because they don't follow judges that closely, they just see a a name on the ballot and they think, oh, I've heard of that person and they vote for them. I feel like that happens all the time, especially with common names in Cuyahoga County that that people just they don't you know, like any publicity is good publicity. 
the fact that he got reelected after Serial was distressing because I think anybody who took the time to listen to that and heard the way he governed himself would not want him as a judge. I mean, I wouldn't feel like I'm getting a fair shake in his courtroom. He he's out of control. This stuff shows just how over the top he is. But he got reelected. I mean, I, I our editorial board, I'm pretty sure, endorsed against him for that reason. Uh, but he he got elected easily. Um, I don't know that he can run again, but he may not get the chance. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and we've gone long, which is to be expected after we're gone for a week and a half. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. And thank you for listening to this podcast.